This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Robin Vos, professor of history at St. Thomas University, Fredericton, the capital beautiful of the beautiful Canadian province of New Brunswick, to talk about his new book, The Index of Prohibited Books, Four Centuries of Struggle Over Word and Image for the Greater Glory of God, out this year, 2022, with Reaction Books. Hello, Robin, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Yana. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for this invitation. Uh, It's wonderful to talk to you. I'm really excited. So how are you over there in New Brunswick? Well, it's, uh, we're just about at the end of the term and exams are uh, bearing down on us. So it's a joyous time of the year. <laughs> it is. Uh, the end of the semester is bittersweet, is it not? Yeah. No, it, it, it's actually been really great to have the, the students back in the classroom a, a little bit more. Um, and, you know, we've all been through so much over the last couple of years with the pandemic and all the restrictions. Um, you know, it, it's just great to have full classrooms again and talk about history and knowledge and people are eager to to get into this stuff. It is so nice to have regular human contact. And um, yeah, you know, if you're an academic, this the schedule of starting and finishing in 15 week doing your life in these 15 week blocks, it's uh, really pervasive and I, I've missed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't have captive audiences uh, that that have to give us, you know, immediate visual feedback. Uh, that's something that is so important to to thinking through our uh, our research and our, our own thoughts about history. Um, it's so important to share with people and, and to to get their reactions. Lecturing into into you know cyberspace as I guess we're doing right now, but as we've been doing for years with some of our classes teaching online um, has been great because we've reached some people that wouldn't otherwise be able to come into class. But yeah, having that immediate feedback from people's expressions and questions live is really, really irreplaceable. It absolutely is. (sighs) All right. Uh, So I'm looking at your CV. You're the author of Dominicans, Muslims, and Jews in the Medieval Crown of Aragon. That's Cambridge 2009. And a a number of chapters and articles, Heresy, Inquisition in the Later Middle Ages. Um, One of a great title, Friars on the Edge, Socioeconomic Networking and the Dominicans of Concord, Mallorca. Etc. And it's clear you have a firm and abiding interest, not just in religious history, you know, writ large, but really specifically mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church's attempt at self-regulation. Yeah. Um, so the Index of Prohibited Books seems like a natural fit. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about what brought you here. How did you come to write this book? 
Well, I mean, it was quite a quite a saga in a lot of ways, a lot of stages to it. Um, yeah, I, I initially was interested, and still am, very interested in religious conflict, and specifically the medieval uh, intersection of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So I began to try and study how medieval Dominicans, in particular, but but other other activists. Um, representatives of the Catholic Church, how they tried to discipline Jews and Muslims as, as missionaries, sometimes as inquisitors. Um, and I found the more I studied that, the more it came back to them wanting to discipline themselves and discipline Christian believers. Um, and the disciplining of Jews and Muslims was often tangential to that, or it was incorporated into that, but it wasn't the prime directive. So that was my initial research uh, subject. It wasn't specifically the Inquisition. But um, there's a lot of fortuitousness, uh, serendipity in research sometimes. So I began this uh, graduate study research in the late 90s, 97. It was the exact same year that uh, Notre Dame, where I was doing my PhD, obtained what was then the world's largest private collection of Inquisition materials, the Perua collection. So it all came into rare books just as I was looking for summer jobs. And uh, it became my private playground for the next few years. Right at that same time, 1998-99, the Vatican decided to open, for the first time, the Inquisition records in Rome. So, you know, as someone who had a, an interest in Inquisition as one form of religious discipline, suddenly all these sources uh, are available to me right at the beginning of my career, and I got to work with some fabulous mentors. And um, so fast forward a few years, and uh, I've put up a bunch of documents trying to introduce people to Inquisition history on the Notre Dame Library website. And uh, that's where one of the editors from Reaction Books saw those materials and suggested that a more in-depth approach to the, the index would be something that readers would find useful and interesting. It never really been done before, and the more I realized it hadn't really been done before, certainly not in English. Uh, this was a project that I really wanted to take on, to introduce people to this thing that's very complicated. It seems simple at first, it's just a list of banned books, but you need to understand a lot more about it before you can use it as a historian. And so that's what I tried to do with this book, is introduce people to this vast resource of, of information. That is so much more than just a list of books, right? Yeah. It's so, it's, I mean, on one hand it is. Well, I mean, let's talk about that. Let's want to talk about your sources more broadly, but mm -hmm. let's start with the index itself. When you say that, what do you mean? What is this index of which you speak? Yes, in some ways that's the first problem because it isn't a, a single thing. And so, you know, we're fitting uh, into this category a number of different documents, a number of different lists, all of which had their own complicated history and relationship with one another. The way I define it for the purpose of the book is basically to say that I'm looking at any lists of banned books that enjoyed some sort of institutional authority within the Catholic Church hierarchy. Um, for the most part, by the 16th century, these started to take a fairly regular form as a printed list. Uh, the bindings changed, there were some ancillary documents that we can talk about later. But overall, I'm looking for the most part at lists of books that were compiled by an authority at first university, theology faculties, later inquisitors, 
later uh, a permanent congregation of the index in Rome. So different authorities, all within the Catholic hierarchy, printing their version of the books that should be banned um, and how that evolves over time. I do note, however, that there's some other lists that, that circulate that don't become necessarily part of the index, but are also important to keep in mind, um, including some surprisingly rare medieval lists, manuscript medieval lists of banned books that I see as sort of the genesis of this project. And then later, um, you know, while the printed indexes were being circulated as official documents, people were keeping their own informal lists locally, um, which sometimes had important historical consequences. So I try to look as broadly as possible at all the different lists of books and censorship uh, techniques in the church. Um, but for the most part, it's about these printed lists, which actually do have a sort of biblio bibliographic history to themselves for 400 years. But they don't sit alone, right? There's a lot of st supporting documentation that comes yeah. with them as well. So you'll people writing to each other about these books, procedure. Exactly. And that's what was so exciting about the opening of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the, the Roman Inquisition's archive uh, at the turn of this century. So just uh, a couple decades ago, this is where all of the handwritten um, archival documents reside for the Roman Inquisition. Um, so being able to trace not only the final black letter decision that, okay, we are going to ban Dante's De Monarchia, for example, that's a, a simple line in the index, to be able to go back and see the debates that went on internally uh, at the Vatican about whether we should ban this book, and if so, do we ban the whole thing or just parts? These are the, the very rich and dense archives that I only dipped into a little bit. I mean, there are many careers worth of material here, and other scholars are just starting to do some, uh, some case studies that informed my book and hopefully will continue to develop this field. Um, so, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the mm -hmm. word was God, right? I, you, you start uh, very early in your introduction, you open a, a section there. Uh, what does that mean to us? Yeah, so I wanted to start by just questioning, I mean, why censorship is so significant? And it, it took you know, a few months, years of research and thinking and writing and teaching and talking about this with my captive audiences of students um, to get beyond the simplistic answer, because it is very easy to just say, well, you know, people ban books when they don't like them. It's just that simple. People are mean. Censorship is bad. Um, that's the end of the story. And we all oppose censorship um, as, a, as a general bad light on society. But that would be a very simple and short story to tell. And I think there's a much more interesting story to think about, well, what are words? Why do words matter so much? Why does the expression of a phrase impact the world um, politically, personally, socially? Because there are some things that I think when we, when we get pushed to the limits, we actually do think, yeah, maybe those should be banned. Maybe there are some particularly horrific, threatening, um, harmful 
words and sometimes images that can cause uh, you know serious problems serious enough to weigh against the harm of of censoring them of, of removing them from circulation so once you question and, and start to play this devil's advocate position of is all censorship bad is there sometimes a logic to censorship that could be defensible that's when you start to develop uh, you know I, I study medieval Catholic theologians I have to have some sort of sympathy to understand where they're coming from what made them act this way to dismiss them in a sort of Monty Python-esque ver version and say well they're just they're just wicked people who like to hurt others again it's it's maybe satisfying and funny but it doesn't help us understand why this happened. So to understand why for 400 years, some of the most intelligent, um, really devoted intellectuals in the Catholic Church, these were not fools, um, really thought that there was a reason, a good, important reason why they should weigh words and decide whether these words were safe for circulation among lay audiences in particular that they thought were vulnerable to misunderstanding those words. Uh, that's why I just wanted to start the book by musing on what the word actually is, and more specifically what the word meant to these very Catholic theologians who wrestled with uh, their job of being shepherds of the word and, and trying to help believers to understand words in a way that was salutary to them to their spiritual health as opposed to falling into error and of course that's the inquisitor's dilemma how do we keep people from falling into error mm -hmm. which is tougher than it sounds yeah. right? right and and because there is a desire for for intellectual exchange for ideas we want the word to be provided the scripture and yeah. some level comes from people and there are some people who are capable of taking in uh, and discussing a lot of information. This this is not just a very, this isn't like, oh, they said these words, it's out, right? There's right. A, a meaningful description. One of the things I find my students have a hard time wrapping their brains around is the idea that this could, this is meant to protect people. It's not punitive, right? Well, I mean, it's both, well, right? The, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and of course, this is, yeah, this is one of the challenges that I always have in, in discussing some of these uncomfortable moments in history, right? Because there's, you know, the Inquisition um, is a, you know, it, it's a big, scary word. And it, it comes from a tradition that is still beloved by many people. Um, but it is also uh, a tradition that hurt a lot of people. Mm -hmm. When the disciplining, when the protecting is sort of consensual when you've got a community of believers who want the pastoral guidance of their their appointed experts to, to direct them and show them what is bad literature that should be avoided what is good literature to be consumed then you know uh, yeah that sort of disciplining activity has a has a place and has a a, a positive function I think and that's why I encountered people in the research for this book who dearly miss the index and, and still feel that the index they grew up with in the 50s and 60s was actually something that they valued as part of their spiritual uh, lives, that there was a guide, uh, that there are some things that we as Catholics should not read. 
But of course, it did a lot of harm to people who were not consensually part of this. Mm -hmm. And and um, so when I'm talking about these people that I find quite brilliant, people like Cardinal Bellarmine um, and uh, Francisco Pena, who were multilingual scholars with a depth of theological knowledge far beyond mine, and I have a certain respect for them, and I want to develop a certain sympathy for their project, I have to weigh that against the fact that they were there when Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake and when Jewish uh, Talmuds were being uh, viciously mutilated and sometimes burned. So there's a, a balance here between the, um, the, the clearly persecutory effect of some of this censorship and what I, I do think was as well-intentioned. I think it was all well-intentioned. That's the other part of it, right? Sometimes yeah. people think that they do have a, a duty to harm other people, and that's hard for us to get our heads around nowadays. Yeah, and harming to protect, right? Yes. That, that that harm it's, might be protective. It's a patronizing attitude, and, and that was one of the really interesting parts I, of doing this book was getting at some of the ways this unfolds in a, in a colonial uh, uh, perspective or colonial setting, um, which, you know, appears at the margins of the index but was never part of the core mission. And that's where some of the some of the more interesting, I think, parts of my book are actually where I, I end up straying a little bit away from the story of the, uh, the Index of Prohibited Books um, itself, per se, into this para-censorship milieu inspired by the Index of Prohibited Books, but where you see these sort of local freelance Franciscan and Dominican missionaries in the Americas or Africa um, censoring things on the ground using the same logic but uh, almost outside the index tradition. Okay. Um, you also, I mean, make this point really clearly that this this isn't. Um, I mean, it's, it's a minor point, but one to talk about that this is not just this isn't just a church situation. We mm. we have done this forever. We as humans, right? The, that there's it's hard. There are very porous walls between censorship and curative protection, and this this is a, a long tradition. You know. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding, but this is not any kind of bizarre, like, you know, this isn't just some rare moment in history that we're seeing. Um, all right. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and sure. sort of talking about these kind of larger ideas into something very specific, which is that I am deeply, deeply in love with chapter four, okay. how to ban a book. Yeah. Um, so much fun, which is basically a case study of a couple of works by Ramon Lull, who I also love. Um, which so we start with Triomphe de l'Amour and which is announced, denounced officially. I can't really tell, uh, but denounced. Mm -hmm. And then there's, uh, there's another work, but let's, let's start there. So tell us about Triomphe de l'Amour and what happens. Right. So here's where, you know, I come from this as a medievalist, um, which is the period before there was an index, right? Um, but the Dominicans I study uh, in the Crown of Aragon uh, were especially upset about this guy, Ramon Lul, uh, Ramon Yui in Spanish. Uh, he's a, a, a tragically little known figure. I think you might agree that he is fascinating. One of the most interesting figures in medieval history this self-styled um, guru and um, religious expert, he, he was not a formal part of the church hierarchy, but he had a conversion experience, mystical experiences, ended up studying Arabic, a little bit of Hebrew, Greek, and developing his own interpretation of Christianity, 
very close to the Franciscans in many ways, um, but also a little bit special in his belief that he had direct insight from from Christ, that he had been visited by Christ, he had visions, and he had um, wisdom to share with the world. And he was a very prolific writer. He wrote an awful lot, and some of the Dominicans uh, tried to get him banned in the 14th century, specifically Nicholas Americk, who appears throughout this book. So I was very interested in Lul, and so one of the case studies I did at, in the Vatican uh, at the Archive of the Inquisition was to see what they had on Lul. And I also checked the Madrid archives for more of this. And boy, there, there's going to be some articles on the banning of Lul coming out. Uh, they're, they're really great, great documents. Um, but yeah, when I was in Rome, the, the, this case study was one specific attempt to ban one specific edition of one of his many, many, many books. And it shows the haphazard nature of a lot of this censorship. This is you know, pre-computers, pre-internet and mass communication, instant communication. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of room for misunderstandings and, and uncertainty about what should be banned and what should not be banned. And this is a, a perfect case study. Here's a medieval author dead for over 200 years at this point, And somebody has decided to reprint one of his works. Well, I thought he was banned. Well, it turns out he wasn't necessarily banned, and there's some debates back and forth between the French and the Spanish about whether he was banned or not, and the Dominicans and the Franciscans. This is one of the hallmarks of my, my research, is that you know, there were, it was very hard to get consensus in the church about who was bad. Um, it, it's very helpful if the author declares, I hate the Pope, like Martin Luther, <laughs> um, then you can be pretty sure that he can be banned. But Lula was before Protestantism, and so there was a lot of question about, is he a prophet? Is he a, a true, possibly a saint? Um, or is he a heretic and a deceiver? So we have this new copy of the book coming out in Paris um, in the early 1600s, and it's a French translation. Okay, so alarm bells go off. Theology translated into a vernacular language exposes it to readers who are not expert priests, possibly gasp women might read it, um, and all kinds of trouble could ensue. So, you know, the alert signs went up with a lot of translations of, of theological works. Next, we have a Dominican in Belgium who speaks French, sees this copy and says, wait a minute, not only is this in French and it's theology, I seem to remember that name, Raymond Lull. I think I've read about him somewhere. And so he goes back and sees that, yes, indeed, I'm pretty sure he was banned 200 years ago. But how do you set the censorship in motion at this point? He's a, a Dominican in Belgium. He sends a letter to a friend in Rome and says, please look into this. And I don't know whether he couldn't afford it or just didn't want to ship a copy to Rome, but he didn't send the whole book. He just cut out the title page and mailed it to him. Because at the end of the day, it's not even clear that he read the book or that anyone read the book. Mm -hmm. The question was, is the title page correct? Because it said that Raymond Lula was a saint and a martyr. And this guy said, well, I don't think he's a saint. I think he's a banned heretic. So the, there was a discussion at Rome. We know there were parallel discussions in Spain at the time, too. And, and questions about Lul's sanctity or heresy continue to this day. Um, in the end, uh, they decided there, there was a brief investigation, and they 
decided that uh, on further investigation, it looks like Raymond Dole is not banned. Thank you very much for your time. Nevertheless, we know from some of these other documents that simultaneously people in Mexico, uh, priests in Mexico, were also opening copies of little translations that arrived there in Spanish and saying, oh no, this is definitely dangerous. We're banning this right here on our own authority. So that chapter um, is trying to show you there was no one way to ban a book. Um, it, it turns out this, this whole system of censorship was much more haphazard than you might think. It was not totalitarian in its efficiency. It really depended on individual priests finding these books, mm -hmm. asking themselves and maybe doing a bit of research and, about whether they were uh, worth banning or not and then trying to send copies, or at least title pages, to a central authority. In the case of um, the Triomphe de l'Amour in Rome, the denunciation seems to have failed, it never went anywhere. Nevertheless, I cannot find a copy of the Triomphe de l'Amour anywhere except for a single copy uh, at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. So whatever censorship took place, it was pretty effective. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there's this censorship back in, in Mexico that seems to have lasted for a few decades um, uh, before people just forgot about the denunciation because it looks like the denunciation was lost on its way back to Madrid, so there was never a formal um, addition of Lul to the, to the index. So many good issues there, yeah. right? Like, how do you, how would you even go about getting banned? Who's the, who's the central authority? If you've got somebody in Germany who dislikes it, what does that mean is going to happen in Madrid or in Rome or in Mexico City, right? And then these conversations, but who shouldn't read this book? What do we do? And then even after all this discourse, meh, it's still the early modern world and transportation is sketchy and books go missing. And yep. Yeah, well, and this is why this this really helped to explain so many of the, the questions that I encountered as I looked at the, the different editions of the index, because, you know, again, when we just approach it as a list of banned books, uh, we just scan through it looking for names we recognize and, and names that will shock us. Oh, how dare they ban Dante, for example? Um, that just shows their ignorance. But the more you look at the list and the more you start to figure out who's on it and who's not on it, or it looks really haphazard in a lot of ways. There are people on it who seem really marginally problematic from any Catholic measure. And then there's uh, people who aren't on it who were absolutely anti-Catholic and, and trying very hard to offend. Um, <laughs> and they're not on the list. So when you understand the, the complexities of getting on the list, it starts to make sense that you, you really are talking about cases where somebody found a copy and cared enough to do something about it. And that doesn't always happen. There's a lot of books circulating that people just don't ask the question and don't bother to cause a stir. Sometimes people decide to cause a stir, maybe unnecessarily, not so much because the book is so offensive in and of itself, but because they're trying to make a point and advance their career. They're trying to be noticed in Rome that, oh, look at me. I have found this obscure book with one problematic passage. See how thorough I am? And we know there were cases where people were building their careers by demonstrating their zeal as censors. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the consequences of being, of writing something that can get this attention can be minimal, but it can be also deadly, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, this changes through history, right? There, there's periods like the late uh, 16th century, when you're at a time of the wars of religion, um, Protestantism and its challenge is a matter of life and death, and people are being executed. Um, so this is where you certainly do have not as many executions of authors as the black legend would make us think, as sort of popular conceptions would have us think, but that's not to minimize the ones who did die. Uh, there were capital sentences handed down, and you know the probably the best known one, the one that I mentioned in the book as an emblem of this, is Giordano Bruno, um, burned at the stake uh, in 1600 uh, as a result of his writings. But for the most part, by the time the Inquisition uh, processes a book and decides, makes a decision, sometimes it took decades to do so, authors are usually dead at that point and, and beyond the reach. So you can, you can affect their, their legacy, as happened to Machiavelli, for example, limiting uh, the spread of those works, um, and also with Galileo. But even Galileo, you know, he, he died shortly after his, the final sentence. He, he might have been executed if things had gone worse, but in his case, he suffered uh, periods of house arrest and having his books limited. And then, of course, for other authors who are already dead, there wouldn't be a consequence. But then there's also the potential of, of serious consequences for owners and, uh, and sellers of these books. And I give a few examples from Venice where we do know uh, a bit more about the impact of the censorship on booksellers. And we have cases of people being executed again in the 16th, late 16th century when, when things were at their most uh, fraught. But again, by the time we get into the 20th century, and this, this story continues into the 20th century, obviously we're not talking about people being physically punished anymore. Um, we've got cases of people just um, getting a rap on the knuckles and uh, being told that they've been naughty and that their words are, are not appreciated. And in at least a few cases I mentioned in the book, the, the authors thanked the inquisitors for their input and, and agreed um, that this is positive uh, feedback. I, I'm sorry, I will correct my mistakes. So, yeah, the, the, it runs the gamut from really dire persecution all the way up to just helpful feedback and peer review. <laughs> yeah, I kept thinking about that. You know, I'm like censorship and peer review. Where, where, where are we? Somewhere in the in the midst there is this. Um, and it's and it's not just I mean there, it's not just theologians right scripture in itself is of is under question yeah yeah and and that ended up being a, a bigger part of the study than I had intended at first and and in some ways should have been even bigger um, control of the biblical word was at the core of all this um, at the very beginning the index is mostly concerned with preventing Catholic believers from falling into theological error. It, it evolves into something much bigger because theological error is a very broad, potentially very broad category. But beginning with misinterpretations of scripture, um, scripture is such a complicated text. And this is, again, back to my initial musings about in the beginning is the word and how is the word discussed in scripture itself. There are so many ways of understanding 
what an individual line in the Bible means. Um, there are questions of translation because, of course, the Vulgate Latin Bible that was normative in the early modern Catholic world was itself a translation from the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, so translated into Latin, everyone knew it had problematic passages and passages that couldn't be understood. Then if you want to further translate that Latin version into vernaculars like English and French and Italian and Spanish so that non-elite, non-educated churchmen can read it, again, gasp, maybe women can read it, then there's all this danger of misunderstanding the words in the Bible itself, especially if you then have Protestants or other problematic theologians actively trying to tell people that the meaning is other than what the Catholic Church says it is. So a lot of the censors' work actually was about censoring the Bible itself in its various translations, in its various editions, where they were worried that maybe the choice of word, even in Latin, was not what the rest of the church had agreed on, um, or where there were uh, glosses and introductions written by Protestants, again, guiding people in the wrong direction on the Bible. And then there's all the exegesis and, and parabiblical texts uh, that were targeted after that. But this, this creates, as you brought up before, this incredible paradox. The church, at its root, is a biblical religion. The Bible text is essential to the church's work in terms of ritual and, uh, and all, of, all, of the, um, all of the things that the church does in, in church ceremony. But also, at least in principle, Christians should be reading at least parts of the Bible and living by the biblical message. There is an ethical and spiritual message there that believers should have access to. So, again, it comes down to a question of control. The church did not want to prevent people from accessing the Bible. They just wanted to make sure they controlled how they accessed it. Which Bible are they reading? Whose commentaries are they looking to for advice on it? That was the control, and so censorship of unauthorized translations was was really a huge part of the index from the very beginning. This the idea that you should have access to the Bible doesn't apply when we're talking about things like some spirit, some scientific texts or mm -hmm. magical treatises, which is another thing you discuss. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where things evolve and expand, right? So, at the very beginning, the first the, the emergency that uh, was being dealt with with the first compilations of the index was there are Protestants telling us that we are wrong in our interpretation of the Bible, so we must control the Bible and lock down uh, those who can comment on it. But, you know, the Bible, of course, is a book that explains nature as well to believers, the nature of the universe and how the universe works and how we as humans function within the universe. And so that's, that does at least potentially have some claims on scientific knowledge. If the Bible is an accurate representation of God's creation in the universe, as long as you understand it correctly, if that is true, um, then misunderstanding the nature of the universe is a theological problem. And so coming up with a heliocentric model for, for the, the cosmos, as Copernicus and, and Galileo did, was at first considered very problematic by the church because 
it seemed to contradict what was being taught by church officials using the Bible as an authority about the way that the planets move and the stars move and, and the cosmos organizes itself. Now, again, Galileo's challenge was specifically problematic in the 1600s in ways that it probably wouldn't have been in the 1500s, and we know it wasn't in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Galileo's views on the cosmos were eventually accepted by the Catholic Church, and in the 1500s, the Catholic Church did not feel that Copernicus had to be silenced in the ways that Galileo would be in the 1600s. So there's a history to why certain things become theological hotspots at certain times. And the 1600s, you know, there's, I think there's multiple reasons why there's a turn towards banning science and a subset of science texts that we can call magical texts, because at the time it wasn't clear to people where that line lay. Um, it's because having lived through the wars of religion and having this very uneasy truce um, in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War at the beginning of the, of the 1600s, in some ways you have mission creep. You have censors looking for more things to censor, to, to justify mm -hmm. their work. By now, there was an understanding that anything written by a Protestant is just automatically um, off the reading list for Catholics, so we don't have to list them all. It's an, impossible to do anyway. So if you're not listing Protestant authors, um, who are you listing on the censorship list? And so expanding it into looking at science, into magic, into uh, the arts as well, these become um, just part of the mission creep of bureaucrats who need a new target. But also I think the, the shift in terms of what was a prestige knowledge is happening here as a result of the scientific revolution. And there's an anxiety that Protestants are pulling away in terms of they have shown a certain amount of progress and prestige in places like Holland and England and parts of Germany where there are Protestants in charge. The Protestants are welcoming the discoveries of someone like Galileo, partly because they're embarrassing to the church. So there's a politics and a theology, but also it's the right moment in cultural history where science is becoming something worth fighting over in ways that it wasn't before. And that's why um, science comes onto the radar of the, of the censors in the 17th century and never really leaves it. By the 19th century, the, the stakes have changed. It's less about Protestants. It's more about um, materialist atheist science as a challenge to the, the church's prestige. Yeah. I mean, at the risk of spoilers here, people, the Index of Prohibited Books no longer exists as such. Um, but we, that doesn't end the censorship, and it, it certainly doesn't end. More to the point, the church doesn't stop caring about the dangers of the world and how the Catholic how the church is meant to interact with them. So uh, yeah, why don't you tell us what happens here kind of in the modern era as we go into the 19th, 20th centuries? Yeah. So, I mean, the the traumas to the church uh, of the revolutionary period um, can't be overstated. Uh, the, the, the censorship index, uh, the index's power had really faded because of the Napoleonic uh, invasions, the French Revolution. The church lost a lot of its ability to enforce its decisions. So the, the index was becoming more and more just a sort of an oddity within the Catholic hierarchy that had no real purchase in, in the real world. 
um, because authors and publishers just ignored it and, and the church had very little power to enforce anything in most regions. As such, it started to become an embarrassment to the church and Protestants uh, quite enjoyed making fun of this index at, at all the absurd things that were in it, all the contradictions. Um, and again, this idea that the church, it's just proof that the church is anti-intellectual. The Catholic church is a, a church for for ignoramuses, essentially, and prudes and people who um, you know, are to be disdained for many reasons. So by the beginning of the 20th century, the index was, I think, very much in a defensive mode. And although there was a certain uh, resurgence of, of sort of hardline attitudes in the, in the Roman church in particular, after Vatican I, um, and even a certain resurgence of enthusiasm for book banning and for the index, it really took a, a, a swift turn after World War II. Um, World War II was a big turning point. Again, the church is in crisis. Uh, people have lost patience with a lot of the traditions of the church. And so Vatican II is, is the turning point um, where book censorship has become such an embarrassment to the church that the Pope really wants to move away from it. Um, the index is not compiled anymore after 1966. The last edition of it comes out in 1948, and all the, the notes that were kept thereafter just go into the archive, and the archive is sealed. And there's no more discussion about it. But, as you said, um, that doesn't mean that, even though they're not going to have public book banning lists, which have become an embarrassing um, phenomenon, that doesn't mean that the church won't have an opinion on, on theological truth and on things that are published, especially by members of the church. And so the 60s, 70s, 80s, right into modern times, uh, there is still a functioning um, division of the church in Rome. The name was changed this summer to the Dicastery for the Congregation of the Faith. And um, so there are still opinions uh, held in their archives about some of the things that have been written uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries. But again, it's for internal use. It's for, um, for true believers and members of the clergy to gain clarity about what is and what is not problematic in theological terms. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's it's funny, I kind of a, the the imagining an index of prohibited books right now with, you know, with the... Uh, we can't get rid of anything ever. No, that's, that's well, <laughs> there are so many metaphysical questions that we can we can bring up at this point because uh, you know the more I did think about censorship and its its broader nature, the more you have to recognize that the story I tell in this book is one slice of censorship history. The Catholic Church was never the never had a monopoly on censorship arguably was never the most effective at censorship, perhaps didn't even have the most impact on, on world censorship. That's debatable, perhaps, because it did last a long time. Um, but it's always been surrounded by state censorship, by censorship by all other religions. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's not single out Catholicism. It's an interesting history, but there is a history of Protestant censorship, Jewish censorship, Muslim censorship, Hindu censorship, and, and this is an ongoing um, an ongoing process. All religions, all ideologies have to decide um, which texts are in and which are out. But I think we're living in, in the 
the most censored uh, moment in history ever. To your point, in some ways, we have so much information now uh, on the internet that in theory will never be lost, will never be erased. And we have, I forget the term now, but there's, you know, we're inventing new words for the, the bytes of information that are being processed every year and stored. Um, it's beyond Giga and Zika. It's into the you know astronomical realm of data that's being stored. But although that gives us the illusion of infinite knowledge, I, I think it's actually the opposite. The internet has brought to us algorithms that sort which knowledge we will ever be exposed to and in what order. And those algorithms are are in a obscure place far less transparent than the index of prohibited books ever was and less appealable. Um, these are imposed on us without our knowledge, without our consent and without our understanding and, and largely without the understanding even of their designers, how AI takes off once it gets started. So we're already limited in what we see of that vast pool of knowledge. Also, we don't really know how much of that knowledge is being lost. Um, try deciphering a floppy disk from 1988. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of information that has been lost for all practical purposes. Perhaps it is recoverable somehow, somewhere, um, but it's, it's as good as lost. So we're in a, a really interesting moment. You know, we look back to some of the classics of literature about censorship, like 1984. Mm -hmm. One of the things when I reread 1984 for this book that people forget about Orwell's prediction. He wasn't just saying that we will someday be in a world where um, problematic information goes into the memory hole and gets burned and destroyed. He said almost worse than that is the, the state, Big Brother, will force prole feed information upon us. We will be inundated with garbage information to the point where we can no longer process truth from, from, you know, from falsity. And that's clearly where we are. So yeah. Orwell, you know, he wasn't just predicting book censorship. He was also predicting this, the opposite, which is just to, to pour so much uh, crap information on people that um, the valuable information gets lost in the signal. Ironically, that brings us right back to what the censors thought their job was in the first place, was to divide away the bad literature, the misleading literature, and to keep the good literature, the Bible, and the true Catholic interpretations of the Bible in front of the eyes of believers. So that really threw me for a loop the more I thought about that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I dislike censorship. I think it's bad. And yet at the same time, um, discernment has always been part of the story and must remain a part of the story. And the question then becomes, who gets to discern? Is it going to be Elon Musk and Google? Is it going to be peer review committees? Is it going to be national governments? Is it going to be individual consumers? And that's the challenge we face as we move into the new phase of censorship history. Fascinating. Wow. What a, what a great turn. Uh, perfect place for us to sum up then, for us to come, to come to a conclusion today. And I have taken a good deal of your time. So I've just got to, uh, the one more question. Um, you having left me with more questions than I had when I started. Um, but just one remaining thing. What are you working on now? What are we going to see next? Oh, well, it's a good question. Um, I 
would love to finish some of the work that I've been doing on uh, the medieval inquisition. Um, Nicholas Americk's manual of inquisitors uh, has never been uh, given any serious modern study. It's shocking to me that this most important and most frequently cited text about the inquisition um, has no modern edition and people cite it without reading it all the time. So I'd love to do some more studies on how the Inquisition actually did evolve from the 14th to the 16th century, uh, looking at that text and others. I think there's a lot more to be said about that. At the same time, stemming directly from my findings in this book, I, I love chapter five. I, I love all my chapters, but uh, chapter five, in right. some ways, the one on biblical texts and scriptural texts, it was the hardest one for me to wrestle with and it was the most open-ended at the end because um, the Bible is clearly controlled, as we said. But then the control over Muslim and Jewish texts, which expanded into control over pagan texts all over the world, um, African, Asian, indigenous American texts, all of these religious books came out, uh, in for the same scrutiny that the Bible did, but not with the same degree of rigor. Um, and sometimes they were just destroyed willy-nilly without it even having their titles uh, entered on the index. So there's a, a lost history of censorship of indigenous and non-European literatures and artworks that I would love to do more case studies on. I would love to do case studies on the destruction of Nahuatl books in Mexico, which seems to have been on a much larger scale than we ever realized. Yeah. And I'm based in Canada, and I can't uh, I can't turn away from the, the historic moment that I inhabit. We are on a path toward truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada. I live on unceded Indigenous Wallastriac land, and um, there is a history there too. The Canadian government had a, a ban on potlatch and other Indigenous religious ceremonies up until the 1950s. That we're still living through those those legacies mm -hmm. and i think that i can study a lot more about how the jesuit and recollect missionaries of the 16th and 17th centuries treated indigenous knowledge written or not and how that impacted later canadian history so uh, stay tuned for a little bit more on um, global censorship as well as the medieval origins of all this Wow. All right. Uh, stay tuned. I will. All right, listeners. Uh, this was Robin Bowes talking to us about the Index of Prohibited Books for Centuries of Struggle Over Word and Image for the Greater Glory of God. Another fantastic title out with Reaction Books. Um, there will be a link to it on our website. Robin, thanks so much for joining me. Have a lovely day. It was a real pleasure. This is uh, just such a perfect way to spend a morning. Thank you. <laughs>